Welcome to another episode of the Emulsion Podcast, a show for chefs who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and I'd love to continue the conversation with you from this episode on my online circle community. There you can share your two cents and learn about supporting the show on justinkana.com slash support. For your convenience, it's also linked up in the description of your podcast player. Let's get into the show. My guest today is Chef Chris Spear, the owner of Perfect Little Bites and the host of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Chris and I became Twitter friends through pure internet spontaneity and have effectively become peers in this kind of culinarians that create media sphere. And if you enjoy this interview, I also recommend that you queue up any of my conversations. I think there's two, possibly three, with Ray DeLucci. He is not just a, a mutual friend of the two of ours, but he's just a wealth of knowledge from his experience running a hospitality-focused media brand as well. If at any point you would like to pause and check out Chris or any of the specific linkable things that we discussed, please do check out the show notes that are always available on justincona.com slash media or in the description of this podcast. Chris, thanks for returning the favor and coming on the show. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. So glad we could get to talk a little bit more. I uh, This may or may not turn into a two and a half hour, you know, fiesta, <laughs> but we'll we'll see where things go. We had quite quite the conversation the first time. I just kept going as 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 kind of a fun place to start, because I'm going to try to make it my only question where I do the thing where the character says the name of the movie in the dialogue. You've you've talked to a lot of chefs without restaurants. For those of us that 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 grew up in an industry where long-standing, sustainable restaurants were the pinnacle of success for a chef, how do these chefs that you've spoken with end up defining success for themselves? And please use specific examples if any come to mind from what you've perceived. I think, you know, at some point really doing what you want to do on your own terms. I don't think working in a restaurant is often on your own terms, sometimes even if you own it because you have other investors and you have to kind of appease a number of people. I think it's not really and truly until you kind of strike out and do your own thing, like your really own thing that you're successful. You know, a lot of people seem to be successful. Um, I would say someone like Matthew Jennings, who was on my podcast, you know, someone who has won James Beard Awards, or I think he was nominated for James Beard Awards, uh, has won things like Koshan 555, has a cookbook, had a restaurant in Boston with acclaim, and then he seemingly walks away from it all to move from Boston to Vermont to like live on a farm and is now you know, working for a grocery store, like a healthy living market, like consulting for them. And from the outside, you kind of think like, wow, someone who had it all, who kind of like walked away. But I think, you know, talking to a guy like him, he just, he wasn't happy. He was physically unhealthy. I think he was mentally unhealthy and just needed to step away from that whole restaurant industry thing. And that's the common theme, I think, of what I'm hearing from people on my podcast. A lot of them are, you know, household names within the chef community, uh, and they're, they're kind of blazing their own path. And many of them did start in the traditional restaurant environment, but have kind of figured out that's not where they want to be. The fascinating thing about that identifier, Chefs Without Restaurants, is that we all start there, right, for the most part, Bar barring someone who may or may not, like, inherit some sort of restaurant empire from their parents or something. But, but as you gain experience... 
and you build your repertoire and you feel more confident and you grow your network and you identify opportunities, whether it's in a certain city or in a certain type of cuisine, what are you noticing as reasons that people are reconsidering restaurants as an option and, and, and thinking that, um, is, is it, is it a symptom of, of the times? Like there's just more bit viable business opportunities available or it's like people are remixing things in this, in this new way. Like, what are you noticing on that front? I think all of the above, you know, the restaurant industry is tough. It's something I never really wanted to be a part of when you talk about things like work-life balance, um, getting, you know, paid what you're worth. You know, when you, if you went to culinary school, how much it costs versus what you are making out of there. And just, you know, kind of like all the stuff that comes along with it, the, the long days, the working every holiday, all that kind of stuff. It's like, is there a way that I can go and make the food that I want to make feel fulfilled, uh, still have time with my friends and family still, you know, maybe have some money or benefits or something and figuring that out. And it just seems like there's so many more options. And I think a lot of them were around before. I mean, I'm sure there have been research chefs for decades, but it wasn't something people necessarily went to school to get into. I mean, how many years have, you know, companies like flavor companies or spice companies been in existence or things like that, but you weren't presented that as an option. You know, when I went to culinary school, my idea was that I was going to come out and either be an executive chef right away, because that's what I thought, you know, and probably run my own restaurant at some point. And now I think there are definitely, I think, you know, I mean, kids don't even want to do that. They just want to go straight to being like a food content creator or YouTuber, or, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people who are personal chefs. Like a lot of them don't have any professional experience. They've never worked in a restaurant at all never went to culinary school and are essentially self-taught and they just want to go cook in people's homes. And, you know, that's fine too. Would it be accurate to say that you could, before it was either chase the path in my mind, at least when I was like just starting the two op, the two opportunities that had the most well-defined track record of success to get clout was like, get a show on TV or do the restaurant thing. And then there was, like you said, there was all these other options. You could do R&D, you could go grocery, you could go private chef, you can go catering, you can do all these other sorts of things. But now, because of all of these new opportunities, you can get the clout with this other big, massive pile of opportunities. Would you like? Would you say that that's accurate and that's that's part of part of the reason? Because I think that there's this, this sense of self branding, and there's there's we can talk about ego if you want, but um, I think that that. Those those little in in internal things can be satisfied now with pursuing all these sorts of other things, and so it's kind of like this the the path that I laid out first that that get a TV deal or get a restaurant isn't the only way to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big things I talk a lot about with people is the whole imposter syndrome thing, right? I think a lot of it is just getting over what is a chef and you know, to yourself, what does it mean to be a chef? I think so many of us are tied up in our profession. You know, like you meet someone and the first thing they say is like, it's like, oh, nice to meet you. What do you do? Right. And then you say, I'm a chef, I'm a photographer, I'm a lawyer. And we really self-identify as our career. So what does that mean? I think a lot of people really want to make sure if they say I'm a chef, that they are a chef. And what does that mean? Um, I actually was just on a panel an hour ago with a lot of other culinarians. And the topic was, what is a chef? Like, what what does it mean to be a chef? And, you know, I'm someone who went to culinary school, 
for four years. I went through the American Culinary Federation. I only got certified at the sous chef level, but I felt like I was a chef. I'd been given the title of executive chef. And, you know, I was very protective of that. You know, I, when I decided I wanted to be a personal chef, I joined the Personal Chefs Association and you go in this classroom and they say, well, as far as marketing, you know, put, buy yourself a chef jacket, put it on and go grocery shopping. And when someone stops you in the store and says, where do you work and what do you do? Tell them I'm a chef. And I was offended. I was, you know, I was kind of like, wow, I, you know, I paid my dues. I, I spent a hundred grand to go to culinary school. I have the training and this, you know, woman who's a stay at home mom can also call herself a chef. And I think that that's, you know, in a sense, gatekeeping or, you know, whether it's a cognitive bias of like, you know, because this is how I did it to become a chef, then no one else can. And it took me a lot of time to kind of overcome that and say, well, there are a lot of paths. And yes, while I did X, Y, and Z and consider myself a chef, like maybe other people are allowed to call themselves a chef as well. And it doesn't hurt anyone, right? Like if you are a stay-at-home mom who's never cooked anywhere and you want to start a personal chef business by you calling your yourself a chef and you live across the country, you're not taking anything away from me. And I think that's the hard thing is people really want to be protective of this thing. And I think they just need to let it go. As you think back, and this is me taking advantage of the fact that I have a podcast host with the mics reversed, right? Do any episodes come to mind or specific takeaways from guests that you've spoken with that you've really taken to heart and either adopted them as a mental model or incorporated them in how you how you work or how you cook or how you approach conversations or even maybe made you reconsider what you're doing a little bit differently? Um, you know, I take a little bit from all of them. I think <laughs> just kind of chefs who are kind of becoming comfortable in who they are. And I go back to Matt Jennings again, and maybe because I always feel like he's almost been like a mentor, like he's someone I've personally known for a decade, you know, I'm from Massachusetts. He had a restaurant there. I've cooked, you know, I've eaten in his restaurant a number of times, but also we had an issue with weight similarly where, you know, like he was overweight and unhealthy. I was too. We both lost a bunch of weight at the same kind of time period, but just like being happy, finding what makes you mentally happy. I think there's a lot in this industry, like you're chasing accolades. Now I've never Actually, I've never worked in I've never worked in restaurants, but you're always chasing something like, can I get written up in this magazine or this newspaper? And, you know, if I don't, am I good enough? And I think at some point you just have to say, like, it doesn't matter. Enough is enough. Um, so, you know, I really admire those people who have kind of come to terms with who they are, what they do, and just don't really kind of care about if that stuff comes along with it. It's one of the fascinating pieces of our of our time is that you can see these conversations between mentor and mentee recorded like this and like I'm really I'm 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 just excited to see this potentially result in people being able to actually get excited about being mentored uh the, and I'm saying that from from the lens of like I spoke with my I had a chef that I worked for in Norway and I went back to Norway t- two Decembers ago and I he bullied him into having a conversation with me on the podcast and we got to the end of the conversation and he said something along the lines of like, I'm sorry, I was such a dick to you. And it was recorded, you know, it was like, I don't know, like, and, and I'm just not, not from a sense of like, I wanted that from a, from a, you know, it's, it's so satisfying to hear him say that kind of thing, but it's like, can that encourage more people to be like, Oh yeah. Like, cause, cause when you're working in a restaurant or when you're working for another chef or with 
your specific team, the blinders come on and that's all you see. And that's all you think of from the, from the perspective of like, this is the dynamic between sous chef and chef de partie, or this is how, uh, the executive chef talks to prep cooks. But as we're putting out these conversations, I hope that like, that's a, that's certainly a goal of mine. I don't know if you have anything to speak to of that, but it's interesting well, to hear you say that. And I also think that, you know, it's, it's hard not to be envious of people sometimes, you know, like as I, you know, before I even started chess about restaurants, as I was like doing more food writing and stuff, like I pitched to plate magazine a bunch of times and they kind of responded to me and said like, well, you know, we really focus on restaurants and restaurant chefs and like, you're like, okay, I get that. But now you see guys like Ray DeLucci and Line Cook Thoughts, who's like writing for them every month and people like Amethyst Ganaway. And these are people I love, like been on my podcast, we've talked, yep. but like it would, it would very easy, it would, I could very easily say like, <clears throat> like what the heck, you know, like I pitched them over and over and they kind of rejected me because I wasn't a restaurant chef. But now these, you know, younger chefs who also don't have restaurants are getting the opportunity, like why them, not me. Right. And I genuinely feel happy for them. Like I give them all credit. Um, and I love to see their work, you know, because I think it's time for a lot of these publications to finally recognize that there are chefs who are working outside of a traditional restaurant setting. But you know, it, it that's the kind of stuff that I think you have to build up to where it's just like, you know, just because someone else is getting something doesn't necessarily take anything away from you. And I think that's a big ego thing. I think that it's also, we haven't quite yet defined and listeners are going to get angry at me because this is the third conversation in a row where I'm bringing up signaling. But but it but it's like in the past, a restaurant meant it carries with it a lot of signals. Like people trust to come to you six nights a week. Someone trusted in you to put money behind this project, most likely. Uh, you really have to have your food semi-figured out to have a menu like structured and printed and, and all these sorts of things. So like, what are the signals that could replace? And, 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 and this is me trying to like, um, analyze why a publication like plate would not want to partner with someone who doesn't have a restaurant. Do you know what I mean? Cause it's not that they can't, it's not that you can't speak to their audience. You certainly can, like you're doing it, but it's, it's like, what could replace something like a restaurant or a, and TV, uh, shows have the same signaling, right? Like the producer had to sign off on you as the host of this program and someone had to recipe test your recipes. And so it's like, what signals are going to ultimately end up replacing, uh, these things that are previously like brick and mortar, tens of thousands of dollars a month in, in, you know, rent and insurance and staffing and inventory and all this stuff. Do you know what that might be? Like it, it does that, does that need to take the place of, of, awards of follower count of number of episodes recorded number of cookbooks you have maybe i mean i just think with the food industry changing as a whole uh the people in charge changing potentially i think there's you know now we're looking at new voices and i love that the the food media and these publications are kind of looking at some of the people who maybe aren't uh the same people who've always been in the food media and always had the same opinions. Like they're diversifying, right? I guess that's the word I'm looking for is diversification. Um, and I, I, you know, I think if you're someone who's been in the food industry and you've cooked and you have some experience and you have something to share, you know, put it out there. I, you know, I, I, I would love to hear from a wide variety of people these days. Um, and I think we're on the right track with that. So I say, you know, 
you know, see what people have to say. And if it's something that you think is going to bring value to your organization, put it out there. This is, this is a fun question for you. I, I, I have a theory that I want to get your insight on, but I want to use your answer as, as, bit of a, as a bit of a leading point. What would it take for you to say, hell yes, to a restaurant? I'm not doing that. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, no, I just, I, I'm in a zone where I like my work-life balance. You know, like I've always said, like, I, lo I love my wife. I love my kids. I want to have a relationship <clears throat> with them. Like how many chefs have gotten divorced or don't know their kids? Or, you know, like I had enough anxiety working in a contract food job. I was having physical um, ailments that required me to go to the doctor and undergo pr medical procedures. It was all due to stress working in a place that wasn't even a restaurant. At a restaurant, it would have been totally magnified. Um, I don't have the money for that. I don't want to bring on investors who then uh, have say in my vision. Um, so, you know, I think if you can't fund it yourself, uh, like there's no reason I would ever want a restaurant. I, that's something that I haven't even thought about since I was like 22 and I'm 44. Great answer. However, as my leading question kind of stated, I was I was wanting to play off of this um, concept, maybe is what is what I'll call it that that I hope sees the light of day a little bit more because I think it takes a lot of that pressure that deters people like you and I away from traditional restaurants, and that's the idea of a restaurant as we know it being a part of a larger project a larger organization, a larger brand, or a larger initiative. And it's like that is the arm of that thing that is the in-person gathering food thing. Because we've seen people like the concept of dining together as humans I don't think is going away. How that works and how that can potentially be supported by – and the example that I that I share is like the 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 – um, concept that they did in on Fifth Avenue in, in New York, which was like the 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 Tiffany's restaurant, you know, like or or there's there's one that that was um, Massimo partnered with his old college roommate to do the Gucci restaurant, you know, and so it's like this idea that and it doesn't have to be these like it obviously starts with the high end brands because the 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 resources are there and the the brand awareness is there, but what does it look like for State Farm to open a restaurant? You know, because people like to go there and watch sports games, they're already doing ads on these things anyways to do an in-person representation. You as the chef could then run that State Farm restaurant. The audience is already so so baked in. You're not necessarily worried about, like, having the restaurant part be the profitable engine because you have this other overarching thing that actually helps sustain the business. I'm fascinated by that, and I'd be curious to hear, like, what, what your where your head goes with concepts yeah, like that. So I worked at Ikea. I don't know if we talked yes, about this Yes, we before. did talk about it. Yeah, right? we did. So I worked at the one in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, which is where the home office is. And we did so much R&D there. And we were actually testing a whole series of like high-end dinners and then dinner events there. Like we were doing like lobster dinners and things with a band. Like once a month we brought a band in and we would clear out the dining room and have like tables along the outskirts. And we did like a formal served dinner and we had a band and people would dance and doing things like that. You know, Ikea is kind of innovative in that idea of they have a restaurant in their furniture store. Right. And just kind of, I, I always love that kind of 
thing where we we got to play a lot with it at the place I was. I mean, our the home office for all of North America was right there at our store. So we got to pilot a lot of things. And that was one of the the projects is creating like, you know, most of the stores, their dinners are $3.99 to $5.99. But can we get away with doing like a $7.99 to $12.99 dinner? And what would that look like? So we were, you know, piloting that. I don't know if they've done that since I left. You know, it's been 15 years now. But I do think that's an interesting thing. It's like, could you have like a formal dining experience inside of an Ikea? You know, and this was while the store was open. So people were around shopping, but you also you had to make reservations and buy tickets ahead of time and then come in and have this like really gourmet Swedish dinner. Um, so, you know, I think that that's something that I have played with a little bit there in that context. Do you think that and I'm going to use the word when because I'm so convinced that this is going to happen as you know, people get more and more excited about in-person experiences. Do you see it happening more from chefs coming, coming up and kind of like engaging with these brands? Or is it going to be something where the brands all identify at the same time that like this is a really freaking good idea and they're going to seek out talent to staff their restaurants and, and run these culinary programs? I think it's going to be a little bit of both, you sure. know, in, in my age group, I say, I always talk about chefs aging out, you know, like you hit the mid thirties to early forties where, you know, you're, you're settling in. It's like, you're looking for a little different opportunity. Maybe you've got some experience. You know, I think a lot of big brands probably want someone who's experienced, uh, at least the bigger name brands. And they're going to maybe go after some of those people who they would identify as yes. You know, he's had good restaurants and James Beard Awards and cookbooks. Let's see if he'd be interested in doing this. But then I think there are kids who just don't even want to get into that system and say like, that's not for me. I don't want to go, you know, quote unquote, pay my dues for 20 years in the restaurant industry. I'm just going to start like building my, you know, building my menu, whatever, my repertoire and start pitching people from the age of 21. So I think you're going to see it from both ends. I see it as also a potentially value, uh, that maybe valuable is not the right word, but there's there's this whole segment of the industry, and I I want to touch on this before we get into talking about your your brand and and confidence in building that, but they just like being operators, you know, like they don't need to have the the gallivanting around the dining room kind of kind of sense, like they 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 truly just want their hands on the food. They want to mentor young chefs. They want to work on menus. They want to get better at butchering or, you know, they, they want to source better product. And this idea of being able to partner with an organization that allows you to do those things and it's actually, like, it's baked in. Like, um, I'm trying to think of a brand. Like, uh, like to Toyota maybe, maybe doesn't want everybody to know who the executive chef of Toyota is. But, or, like... But and and it actually will be this viable option for people to go into these projects where they can sustainably just do what they love, versus this idea of like you have to be the the face of this thing. You have to be on Instagram Live. You have to be all over our website, and we're gonna pit, you're gonna get six calls a month asking you to be on the next Food Network challenge kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna name names, but I know a chef uh, really well who was the chef de cuisine for a really well-known chef. And this restaurant's won 
lots of awards and accolades and is well known. And after doing that for a number of years, he left it to move uh, somewhere and become the executive chef for like the corporate dining of a bank, you know, and decided to do Monday through Friday, nine to five. And he's someone who won awards through star chefs and, you know, could have potentially opened his own place based on that resume and just said, you know, I worked for chef so-and-so for a decade but decided that he would rather just go the corporate route and not have to do all that. He doesn't have to post anything on Instagram. He doesn't have to post anything on social media. He's getting paid really well, I assume, to do this job where he now gets to spend time with his family on the weekends and nights. But that's the that's the other point that might come with all of this is that like that's our path out of these horrible uh stereotypes that we that we you know live with on on the day-to-day in the in the industry of like if you if you go if uh so lexus did this big partnership where they were doing um a bunch of like these this like rotational kitchen i'm pretty sure in new york i covered it on the on the podcast months ago so i'm forgetting the semantics of it but if lexus as a brand wants to do a hospitality focused project and you as the chef can say they, they might look at you and say, why is the schedule like this? Like people are working 65 hours a week. Like we need, we, we are contractually obligated to have people work 40 hours a week. Most chefs would say something to, to the effect of, well, then I need to hire more people or something in the budget needs to ch- change. And f- the solution of Lexus handing that person a check and saying, just make it happen. Tell us what what needs to happen. That then can be like the guiding light for everybody, and everybody can kind of like because I'm, I'm I'm constantly thinking through like these practical solutions that are going to work because I'm I'm reminded of things like um, Jessica Largi in L.A. when she had the um, the backing of the co-director producer one of the Russo brothers from the MCU. She had an insane kind of like footprint. And, and location and menu design and structure and everything was going to be great and she was going to offer benefits to her employees and the work hours were going to be great and xyz i don't know if the audience was there for that but like to have a brand that already has an active audience and people want to go to the lexus restaurant because they they love lexus or, or whatever brand that happens to be um i just think that it can be a really helpful symbiotic relationship um and i thank you for sharing your thoughts on it. I don't know if you have anything else to add. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I've, I don't want to be caught up in the machine anymore. Yeah. Right? Like I, I think you, I would say food is my life or a good chunk of my life, but it can, you can still have room to do other things. Right. And like figuring out how to get that balance. And I'm almost saddened by people who don't have that balance. Like these, these, I talked about before, like when COVID hit, all these people were on Twitter saying like, oh, another Friday night, like not working the line. Like I wish I was with my homies. And to me, that's like kind of sad. Like yeah. you had nothing else that like filled your life, like Friday off, like woohoo, like go, like what have you not done on a Friday night for the past 10 years? Um, and I've just never, like, I don't know, I'm not a lifer in that st- stand from that standpoint. Like I just always wanted to find some balance. So anytime that I can, work in an operation or run an operation, but also like redefining, like, what is a restaurant? Like, what does that mean? Does it mean it has to be a brick and mortar that you own that people come to, or can you bring the restaurant to them? My 
tagline for my personal chef business is the best restaurant in town is in your house because I've wanted to brand myself, not just as a personal chef, but the restaurant experience of like, I'm, there's going to be linens on your table. It's going to be preset with silverware. I'm going to cook everything fresh there, you know, and just kind of redefine what a restaurant is. And can we work as a whole on redefining that, you know, just as we're redefining what a chef is, can we redefine what a restaurant is? And for everybody listening, like I, I hope the meth, the the message that's getting relayed is that it, because you choose that, it doesn't make you lesser than, right? Like, uh, there's there, there's a, there's a quote that says, um, it's from from a guy who hosts a podcast called Modern Wisdom, and it's something to the effect of, when your satisfaction that you take from your work is derived from the amount of time that you put towards that that work, it ceases to become a good measure kind of for how you're thinking about like, and, and that totally maps to these people who like the satisfaction they get is not from the, the, the feedback that table 13 said, or it's not from the fact that they uh, got to tell one of their line cooks that they did a really good job today, or it's not from the fact that they got to work with this really cool fish this week. It's from the satisfaction weirdly comes from, and you hear it in how they talk about their work and their life is that it comes from this, place of how many how many how hot how close to a hundred can I get my working hours this week or like how 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 many uh, consecutive days did I go without taking a day off and when that becomes a point of pride and something that you want to to um use as something that you wear as a badge of honor I think that could I haven't taken a really day in two years yeah you know? something like that something like that uh, but, but from what I'm, what I'm, what I'm hearing you say is that there's, there's value in being able to define what it is that fulfills you in your work and, and potentially outside of your work, something a previous guest on the podcast calls life work balance. He, he flips it, uh, which I think is a really cool way to, to talk about that's Aaron Tackleby for everybody who hasn't listened to that episode, but, um, yeah, I'm, we're, we're in agreement. The place I want to take it next you grew up with a very different type of chef media project landscape. And a lot of that, like I mentioned, were, were, was based on like technological limitations or this kind of like t- top-down gatekeepership. It wasn't as easy to kind of like break out or produce your own stuff. But I'm sure that you have peers who didn't make the decision to start a podcast or move their business online, or like you said, they're still they're still stuck in what you mentioned as like the the game or the the hamster wheel. Uh, I'm curious, what is it about your either personality or background or some other thing in you that caused you to want to to do this? Yeah, I think being a extreme introvert uh, and just like not being popular growing up. So <laughs> like I was, you know kind of nerdy. I don't like sports. I mean, like I watch soccer a little, uh, like I just grew up in a town where it's, you know, like you played sports, you know, you were cool. Like I was a boy scout. I'm an Eagle scout, you know, like not super popular. I was always the quietest person in the room. And I think like with the invent of the internet, you could almost have like this alter ego, right? Like you create an avatar of yourself. I mean, I was in college, uh, and it was like 95 when we got on AOL. And I was like, this is amazing because I can like create this screen name and kind of like say whatever I want. And no one knows who I am. And that translated over when social media started. Like I didn't feel like I remember being in culinary school. And every time I had an idea, like I was just steamrolled and just like, you know, nobody wanted to hear from me. And that, you know, people like us, that makes you not want to share even more. 
So when I started my blog, um, I was still working my job and I was really afraid of like being found out. Like I didn't want anyone to know I was doing this thing, especially as I started to turn it into, you know, I wanted to have a personal chef business. So like my avatar was me with like a pig's head. Like I, I had butchered a pig's head and I'm like holding it in front of my face and it was just perfect little bites. And the whole thing was, is like perfect little bites was this chef in Maryland. I didn't even put the city I lived in. And I blogged and I started to get like really great feedback. And then, you know, I started Twitter in like 2007 and all these chefs started following me. I mean, you know, I'm going to name drop a little bit like Rene Redzepi and Sean Brock and like Massimo Bator and these people. I was like, that built some self-confidence in me, but I still didn't feel like I could come out and say who I was. I felt like an imposter. Like people thought that I had a restaurant. Like I just said, like, I'm a chef. That was it. It wasn't that I was a chef at a restaurant, that I was a personal chef. I was a chef at a retirement community. And I felt like if anyone knew that, then I would be discredited. So for years, I was just perfect little bites. It was the guy with the raw pig's head in front of his face. And I just, you know, I was showcasing what I was doing at these retirement communities. But I felt like if people knew where I worked, they would discredit it before I could even tell them, no, but like I'm doing sous vide and I'm doing like butchery and I'm doing this cool stuff. So I just had this alter ego. And then I would, you know, like go to the Star Chefs Congress in New York City. And that's where I would like one by one let people know like, oh, you're like, I'm Chris. I'm the guy behind Perfect Little Bites. So you can put a face with the avatar. And finally, I just had to be comfortable with like, you know, this is who I am. But I've always kind of hidden behind the the walls of the internet and an avatar and a screen name. Uh, and it took me a long time to kind of come out. And people still say to me now, like, you don't seem like an introvert. Like you've got a podcast and a blog and this huge following. It's like, yeah, but that that took a long time to get there, like 20 years. Do you have, have you done days when you do like, I mean, today was pro like semi one of those days for you, right? Like you did the panel into a podcast interview. It's very draining. Do you? Yeah, no, totally. It is definitely draining because there are, there are days where I'll do like two or three podcasts in a row. And I feel like I'm as exhausted doing that as a full cook day. Where it's like, I'm on because, and I prepare, you know, when I do a podcast, I've got a whole bunch of questions and I've researched the guests and I'm ready to go. And then I might only have an hour between interviews and yeah. And then jumping to a panel, like I was on a panel literally that ended a half an hour before this podcast. And that was an hour long. And it's, it's exhausting in a way that's very different than standing all day and cooking, which I also did because I have an event uh, in a couple of days. So this morning I spent the day prepping physically, you know, cooking, standing, working, but the process of just being quote unquote on all on. day, like kind of talking um, is draining. I, I enjoy it, especially during pandemic COVID times where I'm not having conversations with people as much. Um, but yeah, it's, it's exhausting for me. To get back to the pseudonymous, pseudonymous uh, uh, writing and, and content creation, I want to, I want to double click on that a little bit only because I think that it, as people are trying to find their voice as people are trying to just get started or even just test and see if this is right for them. Like if they actually do like hitting that publish button, like, do you have any other advice for people who are, who are thinking that this needs to be under my name? And, and I, I think that the common misconception is I'll build this thing. I'll get to a thousand followers and I'll come out. Some people will know who I am and then no one, either no one will, will want to follow me or I'm going to have to start from zero again under Justin Kana's thing. Whereas previously it was this, this other, this other concept. I mean, I think it depends on what your, 
worried about. You know, for me, I worked for a big corporate company. I was afraid that they were going to say things like I was, you know, sharing recipes that I wasn't entitled to. Someone, uh, a corporate executive chef at the company I worked for told me that if I wrote a cookbook while I was employed, even in my off time, that they would physically like own it, that you were never off, that even if you were home and on your days off, if you created it, it was their content. So, you know, thinking like that, like I had employees, you know, I'm trying to build a personal chef business and I was afraid I would have employees like, you know, of course I had employees who didn't like me. And it's like, are they going to go on my Yelp page and give me all like one star reviews? Like that's why I was anonymous. But I will say that my personal chef business did not grow until I came out. And it, it makes total sense in hindsight. Like no customer really wants to hire me if they don't even know what I look like or know my name, right? Like how, how are you building a customer base? But it's funny, you know, I'm friends with Rich Sheesh who wrote, uh, you know, Koji Alchemy and he still, you know, his name was Jean Doe on Twitter. And I think that's still like his handle. That's not his name. But, you know, um, you know, I got an email from him the other day. It's like, wow, are you really like you have a book out with your real name? Are you still using that as your pseudonym? So there's been a lot of people who've tried to create content under a pseudonym. I think it just depends on, you know, why is it you feel like you can't come out and let people know who you are? Do you have anything the the person who and I and I know you can empathize with this which is why I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I had this um thank goodness the feedback never came through, but I can only imagine the things that were probably said behind my back of people who saw initial YouTube videos that I produced or um you know, and, and people might be getting these things said directly directly to them, or like you said, it, superiors of yours threatening your job, or, you know, weird backhanded comments in the locker room, or, you know, weird DMs or comments from old coworkers on your videos. Like, is there anything that you have to say to people from, from where you're at now that you, if you received that kind of, you know, feedback uh, when you were early, early on that would have uh, helped things at that time? I mean, get comfortable with criticism because that's just the internet age we live in. I mean, I remember the very first time anything I had done, uh, I had a recipe that was published on Garden and Guns website, which was huge for me, you know, big fan. I'd never had anything. Uh, and I'd done a bourbon cocktail, which I thought was super interesting. And Jed Portman thought was so interesting that he, you know, put online and the, they put it on their Facebook page. And the very first comment was like, what a bunch of crap. Like, why would you waste good bourbon on a garbage cocktail like that? And you're like, oh, like, you know, really the, the first thing I ever put out, like through a major publication, like the very first comment. And it's just like, unfortunately, that's the nature of the internet. Um, but, you know, if you can take constructive criticism, it's like the podcast, you know, looking back, like when I started, I knew nothing about audio engineering. Like it's not my background. I just put out a show that I thought was going to be fun. And um, there's someone in my city and he has a food truck and he's a friend. And I bumped into him in Costco and we were just like talking about the podcast. He said, I've, I stopped listening. Like the audio quality isn't good. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, like I tried listening to it and I just like, it hurts my ears. Like I just don't like it. And you know, like that it's true. Like if I go back and listen to the original podcast, like I didn't know anything about audio leveling. I didn't do any content editing. It was just like three people sitting in a room with microphones and we recorded and then we hit publish. Like, so can you really take the, the constructive criticism, really digest what people are saying and say, yeah, you know, I, I think you're right. Like, I totally agree with you. The audio quality was not where it should have been. And that's not something that I loved, but 
you know, we started and, and please give it a listen now because I think we've progressed versus the like, oh, that's a garbage recipe, you know, like you can kind of, you know, dismiss that. But I think just getting comfortable with all that comes with putting yourself out there because 99% of the people never publish anything at all. And it's like 1% of people who do. And just like, you have to take everything that comes with that. And it's also, uh, may, may or may not translate to this greater self-awareness that you get through taking feedback overall, right? Like you, you, you and I are talking about like, you get this feedback on this um, food-related item, beverage item that you that you created, and then there's also like these media projects, and and it's almost like I like that kind of stuff, like the starting for the beginner mentality. Like when I started video editing, it was very much so like uh, it felt like cooking from the sense of like taking something raw, applying creative energy towards it, and then result uh, kind of and, and immediate feedback. Like you watch the clip back, and the cut is wrong, so you just kind of change it a little bit. In the same way that you re-season a sauce, uh, it's exactly kind of like it felt the same to me, and it's it's almost like uh, there's this there's this trepidation towards content creation that that uh, well it has to be that that, that self talk and feedback that you give to your your content work that you would never get have given to yourself when you were first starting off in food or bartending or whatever, but for some reason you do it to yourself uh, with content that I think is just so interesting in the, in the industry. Well, it's because the content's around forever, right? Like if I work in a restaurant or a personal chef dinner, if I go cook for people and I make a dinner and it's not great, like it sucks for them, but like nobody else is going to know, right? But now like those podcasts, like what do I do with them? I mean, I've released 82 podcast episodes now, like one through 10 probably aren't great at all. And it's like, ah, do I leave them? Do I delete them? Like, do you want to leave them out there so people can see the evolution? Uh, do they want to, can they still pick up some nuggets of wisdom because I had an amazing guest and I was just bad? Like, now that I know how to edit, should I go re-edit them? Whereas like with food, it's one and done. Like a dish is either good or bad and you put it out, it's consumed and it's done and then you can move on with your day. So I think with the content, whether it's, you know, audio, video, photos, um, you have more options to delete, edit, or or whatever you're going to do. And I think that's the difference. Perfect segue into my next kind of uh, overarching theme. I want to talk about scale. And I, I'm, I'm using that as the umbrella by which I want to host this part of the conversation. And this, this semi picks up from our last conversation where we discussed leverage, like a, a, a Naval-ism. But, but effectively, I've been playing around with this idea that, that food doesn't scale. And to, to define our terms a little bit better, I'm talking about the type of scale where there's a marginal decrease or, or effectively net zero cost to replicate a entree or a scoop of ice cream or a canapé. That doesn't exist yet, right? Like we don't have a machine where, again, there's, there's no marginal cost to create more. Like you still have to buy the flour or the sugar or the milk or the pork belly or the avocados. And, and yes, I think we, we get caught up with this idea that wholesale pricing or getting a case discount or, or whatever is scale. But, but, but no one, no one has a business, a food business where they're effectively saying, um, once I hit a hundred customers in seats, it's pure profit from there in the same way that like, if I'm going to put a podcast out for one people, it effectively works for a thousand. The food cost is the same every single time someone orders their burrito bowl, for example. 
And so in my mind, what scales might be the systems, most often exemplified in, in, in food businesses like franchises, for example. Would you agree that food doesn't scale? And I have a follow-up question, but I hate when interviewers ask two questions in one. So, so would you agree that food doesn't scale? Yeah. I mean, there's some economy of scale with like size of parties. Like I talk about like I do dinners for two to 20. And if I go out and do a dinner for two and I charge a hundred dollars a head, that's 200 bucks. I would rather do a dinner for 10 and make a thousand. And it's not that much more expensive. Like I get a better profit because it's the time, right? Because the time is essentially the same. Like it doesn't take much more time to cook for 10 than it does for two. And especially if it's one day, like I go out and do one dinner. Um, but yeah, obviously, you know, if you're buying ribeye steak, uh, if I have two people, it costs X. And if I have 10 people, well, I still have to buy eight more portions of ribeye. I might save on the fact that like the time where I could do more events, like I could do more days of events. I'd rather do one day of 10 person parties than, you know, five days of two person parties. So yes, I agree. Whereas with the podcast, I put the podcast out and whether one person or a thousand people listens to it, it's the same. It costs me the same time, the same processing editing fees and everything. So yes. So you semi touched on it, but how do you think about, uh, and you can approach this from, from how you divvy up your time versus what you like to prioritize versus what you, you see as kind of like the end goal for like in, in my ideal work day or my ideal work week, I, Chris would like to be working on these sorts of projects. How do you think about doing work that scales versus work that doesn't scale? Because there's value in both, I, I, in my, in my opinion. But I'd be curious to hear. Yeah, that's been a big one for me. You know, especially during the past year, I've really started thinking about like, do I even really want to be cooking professionally that much anymore? Like, how much, how valuable to me and to the world is my content creation? You know, I find that I've really gone deep into the podcasting thing and the chefs of that restaurants community. And almost put the personal chef thing on the back burner almost to a fault. I mean, there's been times where like I've just like blipped out, like someone sent me a request for dinner and I didn't get back to them in a timely manner. And like I lost the gig just because my head was somewhere else. Like, you know, I was unemployed for 11 weeks. So I really was like, well, what am I going to do? And while there was no personal chef business, I really went deep into the podcasting. And I, I just found that I loved it so much. And I really buried myself in the work of like, how do I make a better quality show? How do I interview better? How do I, um, you know, make the audio quality sound better? And now I'm just thinking like, I would almost rather like, could I work one day a week and make like a thousand dollars on a Saturday night and have six days where I'm just doing something else? Because I don't think, I know that I can't scale the personal chef business the way that I would want to. I mean, I could hire chefs and send them out, but that's never what I've wanted to do. Like, that's why I got out of the restaurant business. I don't want to be a manager anymore. I don't want to send five chefs out on the same Saturday night and be managing menus. That's not fun for me. I cook because I love it. But now I found that I also like being, uh, I don't want to call myself a storyteller. It's more the facilitator of, a, of storytelling, right? Like I'm getting these great guests on my show and helping them tell their story and sharing it with the world. And if I could financially support myself doing that, 
I kind of feel like that's what I would want to do. And then maybe just go do one event a week just to keep my hands in the cooking. Or, you know, if, if part of Chefs Without Restaurants is me getting paid via a Patreon or some kind of thing where I could just create recipes at home, like maybe I don't even have to go out and cook for customers anymore. If I could be in my kitchen at home, create dishes, photograph them, share the recipes and get paid for that. Like, I think that's something I'd be comfortable with. Well, the, the first time you do it, may, and, and when I say it, meaning meaning do something that truly scales, like do, you do something and whether five people sign up or a hundred people sign up, it's, it's the same output from you. It feels like a glitch in the matrix, man. Like it, the first time you, you make money online versus what Naval calls trading your time for money. It's honestly like, how can you ever unsee that? <laughs> like, how can you ever like, uh, think th uh, you're constantly comparing what you do at this trading time for money thing versus this other thing, which is, you know, the Jack Butcherism of like build once sell twice is what he talks about. Yeah, you know, one of the things I, I started doing was I started using Instant Cart for the first time ever. And it yep. and it just because like, I don't know, I think this chef thing in you is like, I need to pick out all my ingredients. I need to do this and that. And going back to Naval, you know, thinking about he talks about this like aspirational hourly wage. And it's like when I think about the hours that I was spending going to the grocery store because I, you know, I was really trying to be lean and have a good profit margin as far as food costs. So it's like, I would go to Aldi to buy X, Y, and Z. And then I would drive across town to go to Wegmans to buy X, Y, and Z. And then I would go to common market to buy all this, but I was spending like five or six hours grocery shopping. Like, what is that time worth? And then when COVID came where like, I was kind of worried about, you know, going into stores and stuff, I just started doing it. I was like, I'm never going to go grocery shopping again. Like it, it, the margin of, I call it error, like letting a grocery store clerk clerk pick out the ribeye steaks for a party, like I'm okay with that. Like that's within the realm. Like if I look at it in the car and it's garbage, I can always go exchange it. But like, what am I really saving? I'm saving like 15 hours a week. Like if I have all these parties, I'm saving a ridiculous amount of time by having someone do that and just really start thinking about how I spend my time and how does the time kind of fit into the equation as well. And not just the fixed cost of like a product. I mean, you mentioned this, this, uh, word of satisfaction as well. Like the, and I, I find that there, there are different types of satisfaction and, and maybe this is something that I have yet to learn and I will learn as I, I grow older and do this a little bit more, but I, I feel a different type of satisfaction doing food related work from the sense of like when my company produces an event and I get to cook the dinner, that's a different satisfaction than putting out this podcast and the clip, the accompanying clips and the Instagram content for it will, will, will be. And I think that I need, and I, I don't mean to turn this into a therapy session, but I'm hoping to get maybe some of your insight to people that might be feeling something the same is that like, it doesn't, the, the satisfaction comes from like, I need to be better at finding satisfaction in scalable work. You know what I mean? Because like you're saying, it gives you more time with your family. It allows you to reach more people. You're not completely like gobbling up resources to make your money. Um, and if, and, and, and you're doing good, like you're doing good things. It's not like I'm like, uh, scaling my install malware on old people's computer business. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing good stuff. So, so 
yeah, I, I don't know. Like, how, how can I how can I get better at that? Like finding the satisfaction in that. And I think some of it is like, how much is it that people around you don't feel like what you're doing is a real job? Because I think it's still emerging. So, you know, like I have a neighbor across the street who I love and she works in the health field. And all week she's been doing conferences and she's doing conferences with all these well-known people. And that's like acceptable, right? But when I say that, like I have a clubhouse chat today with all these people in the food world, I think people don't think it's a real thing, even though, you know, I'm on a panel with, you know, three chefs who've been on Top Chef and these people who are really well-known in the food world, people look at that and say like, oh, that's not like a real thing. You know, he's talking on a clubhouse panel where like I'm sitting doing this like infectious disease conference or something, you know, my in-laws live with me and they're from a very different generation. I still don't think they understand what I do when I say my work today is like, I'm locking myself in the office from, you know, five to eight o'clock because I have, you know, a clubhouse chat and then a podcast, like, but that's brand building and, you know, leveraging this thing. And I think you have to be comfortable just saying like, this is what I do. People might not understand it. And I still have challenges with that. Like neighbors, when it's like, oh, I got to go. I have a podcast. I don't think they understand that that's work because they don't, they don't understand how you can make money from that. They don't understand how that's a job and like being comfortable with like, yeah, your neighbors might think that you're like a bum or something, you know, and that's really hard. Seth Godin talks about this concept of building a, there's, there's two reasons that you seek out to build something. One is to see something exist in the world that does not exist prior to you making that decision. And the other decision, the other reason is to create an ideal day for yourself. And I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, that you see Perfect Little Bites and the podcast and Chris as a brand as being able to fulfill the latter. True, yeah, true or I false? Mean, yeah, true. I mean, yeah. I just, I want to have like a life that's filled with things. I want to be able to travel and I want to go to art museums and spend time with my family and eat and like, life is not work and life is not, you know, one or two or three things. It's like 40 things. And like, whatever is going to get me to where I feel fulfilled in life. Um, and again, it all comes back to, for me so much about like identifying with a, a career and a job and like societal norms. And I feel like I'm still trying to break free from that. You know, it's like, I was really happy the first time I made money through affiliate marketing and I told a very good friend and she literally said like, shame on you. Like I was shamed. Like I, and these are people who I, they were good friends and I've kind of had to step away from because like they didn't understand what it was. And I'm like, no, no, like all I do is I have an Amazon page and I link to like things I love. And when people click on them, I get paid. And you would have thought that I was like selling child porn, like in their, their opinion that it was just like the dirtiest thing. And I was like, I, I don't understand, you know, but that's just how it is. And, you know, I was like, I don't, I, I don't know if it means I have to work less like work in the traditional sense, then like, why are you hating on that? And I just think some people don't get it. And I think it's maybe like a, a jealousy, like you hate your life and your job and the fact that you're working 80 hours a week to make ends meet. And I get, you know, last week I got a $300 referral bonus because someone signed up for something that I recommended. Like that's working smarter, not harder. Right. Like don't hate. Especially cause like people see that as like, Oh, $300. That's so much money. Uh, there's gotta be something shady behind that. But nine times out of 10, the company that's benefiting from that referral has seen I think the economics is something like uh, in a typical affiliate program, it's like you're looking for like five to nine X return on referral. 
you know? So it's like, whatever happened there, like the, that company is just fine. You know, like you did, you did them a favor. They're adequately compensating you for it. And, and, and yeah, so that, that, that's, that's an interesting uh, piece of feedback for someone to give you. I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. I just, I, I think it's like old school versus new school and, and both of my parents have passed away and I'd be really interested to see, like my dad is very old school. And I, you know, I think a lot of this, I don't know if I'd still be doing it. Like if my parents were both alive, because I do think that they're, a lot of people are, you know, in the shadow of their parents and looking for that. I mean, again, I do have a little that my in-laws live with me and I feel like, you know, they're not my parents, but I have to, you know, their daughter, you know, I'm supposed to be taking care of her and I want them to like the reassurance of like, yes, I have like a real job. Like it might not be what you've always thought of as a real job, but like I have ways of bringing income. And I just, you know, my mother-in-law say like, I still don't understand, like, how are you making money from the podcast? You know, like it's really hard for people of that generation, especially to understand how you can make income from these things. To talk semi-tactically, if you're comfortable talking about it, like podcast host to podcast host, as you're thinking about monetizing, are sponsorships attractive to you? I, I know you just launched a Patreon, and I'm, I'm super happy to have you speak about that, and, and it's obviously going to be linked down below for people. How are you thinking about monetizing? Have you seen, have you seen things that are, that are attractive where you're like, yeah, that, that, I, I, I can see myself doing that? Or I think if it's a brand that makes sense, for sure. Um, I would love to be 100% Patreon supported. We're not there. I know, you know, that's something you've talked about. And I think it's an intro to your show. Um, you know, like, I don't drink soda and if Diet Coke wanted to throw me some money, that's not the right fit. But you know, there are things, what are the things that I already use and pay for myself? Is it, you know, the aprons that I wear or a food product that I buy? And, you know, I've actually taken a, a course on growing and scaling your podcast, which has been really great. And a big component of that is how to monetize. And there's a lot of different ways. And for me, my numbers aren't there. So I think finding someone who you have a great relationship where you say, like, be honest, like, listen, my numbers, my downloads are not at that. You know, these, these companies are looking for like 3000 downloads an episode. Like I'm clearly not there me and neither. I'm not, and I'm not going to make, make any money on this. Like, well, for every thousand downloads, you'll give me, you know, $10. I, I just want you to take a leap of faith and kind of say, listen, I have dedicated listeners. It's very niche. I know who they are. And, you know, if you think that you're a good fit, you know, I'd love to have you. And I'm putting together, you know, my, now you have to have like a pitch deck and like yep. a media package yep. and all that stuff, something I haven't totally been comfortable with. Um, but, you know, finding the the brands that work with with what I'm doing. I've had a lot of great support. Like the past year, I literally just said like, my Venmo is this and my PayPal is this. And if you want to support the show and I have people like I, my old sous chef will just randomly send me $200 and just say like, loving the show, here's 200 bucks to keep you going. Like I paid for my show last year just through crowd support, not even through a Patreon. Nobody got any physical thing. They didn't get a reward. There was no structure. It was just like, I would just get Venmo and I still every couple of days I'll get, you know, like $10 from this person who said, Oh, this episode was great. Here's 10 bucks. Like, I really love that. And that I've been able to cover the costs. The challenge is that's not like a profit. I mean, talking numbers, you know, I was a chef making like $70,000 a year and I left to start my own business. Like, and I'm making money as a personal chef, but I'm not, you know, I would love to not only cover the costs of my show, but, um, make some money to live on. And I don't know when that's going to come, but you know, nothing, I think nothing good really comes overnight. 
I mean, I've been doing the podcast for 16 months now, and that's very early. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who are, have successfully monetized, and they're telling me that I'm ahead based on where they were at the same time frame. So I'm optimistic about that. That's awesome. I would, I think my 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 audience of hungry learners would hate if I didn't ask you what course you took, just so that you can just if people want to explore that, they can they can know. Yeah, absolutely. You. It it's called Grow the Show, Kevin Schmidlin. So he has a podcast called Grow the Show. So he's someone who had a podcast called Philly Who, which he's a Philadelphian and he wanted to interview people from Philly. And, you know, it really resonated with me. His story was, you know, much like many of ours, you build and grow this thing and then you get to a plateau and like, you're not getting any more listeners. And he just like reached out to me. It was no pressure. He sent an email and said, Hey, you know, I've seen that you have a podcast. I have a podcast about building and growing your podcast. If you're interested, give a listen. I just released three episodes and I listened to it and it really, connected with me as far as like, there's so many podcasting courses and a lot of them, you know, I, I'm like, I don't know, that doesn't sound like my thing, but he, I was like, oh, those are my exact problems. Um, and then we talked about it and he said, well, I've got this course, you know, and I signed up for the course and it's a program of like how to build and grow a following. And it's, a you know, at your own pace. So there's like 20 modules. They're all video recorded. There's resources that come along with it. We have two calls a week um, that we're on. And, you know, now he's on Clubhouse and hosting shows uh, a couple times a week. There's a great public Facebook group called Grow the Show, and anyone can join that group. And then for the people who are members, we have one called Grow the Show Inner Circle. Um, but just like realistic. And he is giving away so much of that stuff for free. You know, he talks about watering hole engagement and targeted daily engagement is the core of his program. Whereas like, who are your target listeners and go to those places? So like join 30 Facebook groups and engage with people and don't go and be like, Hey, I've got the chefs of that restaurant podcast. Like I'm going in personal chef groups and just giving my advice as a personal chef and then make sure your Facebook profile is optimized. So when people click on and see who you are, they know that you have a podcast and do that over and over and creating like Excel spreadsheets where it's like, who are your top 100 guests? And every day engage with like 10 of the people who you want on your show. And then who are 50 people in media who you think, you know, you want to be in their publication and engage with them, you know, 10 or 15 of them and spend an hour a day, just, just a, an hour of day of engaging with people who are in your top 100 people who are in the media and people in these watering holes and your show is going to grow and just continuously doing that. And, you know, he teaches you other things like, how to optimize your link tree or how to optimize your Facebook, you know, header and things like that. But it's really based on just engaging with who your co core audience is, who your potential advertisers are and doing that. And it, it's a great course. And, you know, for the amount of money I spent on that, um, I think it's well worth it. I mean, I think any time you want to build and grow a business, you have to spend money somewhere. And this was a good place. Well, especially if it gives you that, like, I'm just such a big fan of like the the person one or two rungs above you on the ladder reaching their hands down and helping you. Like that's such so valuable because it's like it feels so practical. Like the advice, especially as the information changes so fast uh, in, in sectors like this, like just media production being internet uh, content stuff. Um, yeah, huge fan. So thank, thank you for sharing that. The, the important piece that struck me the first time I heard it, and I don't know if you have been um, thinking about similar numbers, is this idea of um, 
I'm going to botch the stat, but I'm going to say a stat and, and I think it might resonate. It's something like if you have more than 10,000 downloads per episode, you're in the top like 3% of podcasters, which yeah. is insane because you're used to like seeing 150,000 followers on Instagram and it's like, that's where I need to get to per episode. And it's really like, you don't need to have that much, um, like the podcasting space is one, it's still so new, like it's evident by the deals that you see floating around in the big in the big space. But two, it's like, to your point, it's such a niche targeted audience. It's literally like this relationship, this one-on-one connection you have with the host and the show. So, so like I released a podcast episode yesterday. Uh, yesterday I, re- I got 158 downloads of that, which yeah. I don't think is a lot but it put me at number 118 on iTunes in the food and beverage. Like that's nuts. That's not that, you know, that's not that much. You know, I can consistently say that I'm a top 100 iTunes podcaster in the food and beverage. And food and beverage is pretty oversaturated. I mean, there's a lot in the food and beverage category. And to, you know, to see yourself like right below like cooking issues or something that I think is like a really well-known, I think, you know, like Andrew Talks to Chefs was like maybe eight above me yesterday. It's like, that was only with like 158 downloads yesterday. And there's days that I'll get like 300 downloads on an episode. Um, it doesn't take that much um, in, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, I know people who say like, oh, I got, you know, 12 downloads yesterday. And and that's a reality for a lot of people with podcasts. Um, but you don't have to have this crazy number, like, you know, 50,000 downloads to, to be in the top. This can be a quick hits if you want, because I, I, I do have a couple questions before I move into some more rapid fire things. Clubhouse, Twitter spaces, Instagram just launched this thing where you can video chat with three of your friends and stream it live. And it can, it's, their competitor to clubhouse effectively have you enjoyed it do you see potential in it do you do you, do you see some flaws or one is you see more long-term potential in than the other because i think as people that are listening to this are possibly thinking about growing an audience or they see these new platforms in the same way that they maybe they saw their friend just completely blow up on tiktok and they're like oh i can do this i missed that boat i can do it on clubhouse what are, you, what are your kind of thoughts on that whole space? Yeah, I went hard on Clubhouse, so I'm going to stay there for now. I mean, just to put numbers out, not in a brag sort of way. I mean, I've been on there about a month, and I have 1,200 followers. I launched my own Chefs Without Restaurants Club, and I have, like, I'm coming up on 300 members in my club. And, like, I feel like that's just one of those things where now I've got down. I'm, You know, I'm an old guy. I love AOL chat rooms, so it is like a throwback to that. Um, now being an audio guy, like I don't feel like video is my strength. Like, I just don't think I have the camera skills. I could spend time working on it. Like food photography is not where I'm going to be. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to invest in all this video equipment. So the audio is something now with a podcast I've been comfortable with and I've really grown to the clubhouse thing. So I went hard, like really early on, like I was staying up till like two in the morning in rooms and just you know, kind of sharing what I knew and engaging with people. And now I look, there's like really well-known chefs and you do feel kind of good, even though you shouldn't get caught up in the numbers. Like, damn, like, does that Michelin star chef, like, a like Jose Andreas followed me. I woke up one Saturday morning and he had followed me and he had like 128 followers. And I had like 700 at the time. I was like, this is amazing. And then we were in a chat room together, but just, you know, like, I feel like it's somewhere where I got on pretty early and was able to scale pretty quickly. And I think, it will, you know, as all these things come out and our attention is divided, I think 
people are going to pick where they want to spend their time. But at least I was able to grow and scale fast. And I found that so many people then followed me on Instagram because of that. And then they found the podcast. I mean, for a couple of weeks, I've been the number one food podcast in Nigeria, like the number one. Um, And that comes down to, uh, I connected with a lot of Nigerian chefs through Clubhouse. And it's, I can directly see a correlation. Now, when I look at the stats of where I'm charting, it's way more global. And that's because on Clubhouse, there's been a much bigger um, global community that I've been engaging with. And I look and say like every week when I release an episode, I'm charting in the top 200s of like a dozen countries. Whereas before it, it was maybe one or two. And now it's like the US and Spain and Netherlands and New Zealand and Nigeria and Ghana. And I know those are just directly coming over from the connections I made on Clubhouse. You brought up a point that I want to touch on. And this might not be brief. We might go for another hour on this because it's it's a really big and it, it's like a thread that I'm noticing throughout like the last two conversations that we've we've had with you. And it's something that I think it's tossed around a lot. I think a lot of gurus kind of talk about it as this thing that is like the pinnacle. And it's it's I notice this self-awareness in you, which is you bring it up in so many of these things as you're talking about how you want to structure your food life, how you maybe I'm not the video guy, you know, maybe I uh, and these these it, it helps guide your decision making. And I'm really, really like a huge fan of people getting better at decision making. How do you cultivate that as someone who is um, potentially feeling like they are a ship in a storm whatever that analogy is they're just like they're they're just guided around wherever the the winds take them you've you've really seemed to have found your footing like what what do you what how can people do that it's the gary v right it's correct um, correct the the self-awareness but moving fast like i there's things that i'm really interested in and it's where do i want to spend my time like knowing that my photographer i just i think there's it's like feeling like you're already behind the ball of so many people and not and realizing you maybe don't have the skill set. Like I look at food photographers who are just amazing. It's like I don't understand ISO and aperture and camera settings. I don't have the backdrops for that. I don't have the light. Like how long is it going to take me to teach myself photography and then purchase the equipment and do that to even be a fraction of where they are. Like, I'm not even going to make any dent in that space. So like, what and it's am being I okay. doing well? It's yeah, and being, being okay, okay with that. that. It's being yeah. okay with and, that. And just saying that like, I'm mm-hmm. not going to have this Instagram that is very cultivated mm-hmm. look of like a, a food blogger. Like, that's just not going to be my thing. Like I'll put out photos of my food, but I'm not going to get 10,000 followers at Perfect Little Bites because of the pictures of the food I put out. Like it just, it is what it is and being comfortable with it. But what am I really good at and going deep into that? And then because I'm good at it or I'm really interested in it, I can move so much faster. Because correct me if I'm wrong, and it's going to be so hilarious if this has already happened, but like you could be hosting a clubhouse room where someone is looking for a photographer for their cookbook you happen to connect the two and that photographer reaches out to you and says hey if you need any photography stuff like this this is a huge deal for me thank you so much i'd love to like repay you in some way shape or form and then you're like i got a talented photographer for my food now you know like well i i think being the you know i want to be a connector or a super connector and i think that's one of the things like i love community is what it comes down to right like that's what Chefs Without Restaurants is all about. I built it. I built the community that I didn't see existing either in a physical space 
where I lived or really online where it was just like having the camaraderie and helping people because you liked helping people and wanted to see them grow. So anytime, you know, it takes work. Like people will reach out to me and say, I'm looking for someone to do meal prep in DC. Like that's not my thing. And I could easily say, sorry, that's not my thing. But I say, sorry, that's not my thing. If you want to fill out this questionnaire and send it back to me, I will connect you with people who can do that for you. And then I do, and I expect nothing in return. I don't say to people like, well, for a 10% fee or a $20 fee, like I just do it. And that's how I've kind of wanted to live my life is just like helping people. And I do believe in that karma or whatever you want to call it that will come around and the long tail of these connections. You know, it's like with the podcast. People say, wow, you just started and you have all these big names. It's like, yeah, but I became friends with them like on Twitter in 2007. You know, like it's very long, like before there was even an idea of like Michael Twitty and I have been talking for a decade on Twitter, right? Like, but it's, an, so it's all of a sudden go, an overnight success. Yeah. So I can go in for the ask and say, no, do you want to come on my podcast? Because it seems like we know each other, you know, and that was just because I was genuinely interested in him and what he was doing and became, you know, internet friends. And it paid off in the respect of now the ask is easy because I built all these relationships. So I can just, you know, in my podcasting class, I talk about, well, I'm going through my dream 100 really quickly. And everyone's surprised. It's like, but these are people like, I'm just... I hate to say leveraging the relationships I've built, but you know, they're people who I've reached out to over the course of 10 years who I feel like I've become friends with. And now I can say, Hey, do you want to come on my podcast? You know, it's not like I'm reaching out to a complete stranger when I do it. And it's so much easier. A thing I'll add that I think I'm noticing that you do really well that might help people in their process of gaining more self-awareness is it's like when you're starting, you haven't done enough to have enough data. Like you haven't garnered enough information to know, I like this. I'm good at this. This makes people happy. Be, I don't really shine when I when I do that kind of stuff. But you 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 seem to, and I hope that people can take away from this, this idea of like looking backwards at things that you've done and identifying. Like so many people are just like onto the next job, onto the next restaurant, onto the next city, um, onto the next relationship maybe. Um, but like really taking the time to reflect and, and that I think like cultivating that I think might be the, the value add that when you get to that, because it's, it's, it's backwards, backwards, backwards until you hit a point when all of a sudden you can project that forwards and use it to help make your decisions. And that's when it's like, Oh, now this is useful. You know, but you have yeah, to have I can, this backlog. I can put this all back to like one event and how it started, like the thing, like the chain reaction. And I can say like, this is the person I met that turned me on to this, that did this. And when I look at that, it's really crazy. And it goes back to like Dave Arnold. I took a, uh, I took a cooking course. I went, him and Nils Noren did a class at um, FCI and I asked my job if they would pay for me to go. And I went and I like, I, I was kind of burnt out. Like, I, I don't even know. This was like, oh, 12 years ago, maybe. I don't even know if I want to be a chef anymore. I was just looking for something different. I went out like I wasn't on social media at all, but, but like I met him. But then he's like, he convinced me. He's like, you need to get on Twitter and follow these people. And like introduced me to like Alex at Ideas and Food and like all these blogs and stuff. And it opened my eyes to this whole new world. And then like I find Alex at Ideas and Food and like I'm really interested in them and, and I helped him with some projects and he actually quoted me on on their blog. Like there's a blog post that like links back to Perfect Little Bites like Dope. a long time ago. And I started following all these people and it just like snowballed and it goes down 
you know, I could go down this rabbit hole of like, then I met people through star chefs. And then like that allowed me to like write for star chefs, which, you know, allowed me to do all these other things. And it just kind of goes back to like this one moment that kind of like opened my eyes. And it would be again, really easy to say like, it just happened, but it didn't just happen. It was like being very aware kind of in the moment and just kind of pulling on the string and just, you know, following that along. Our segment we did as the conversation that you hosted on private chef work, people seem to like it. People seem to enjoy it. So I'd be curious, uh, just if, if, if you, if you wouldn't mind riffing with me a little bit on, on, on a little bit more of that. And if there's any more kind of like, um, and you can go either direction, like general, general thought processes and kind of like overarching, um, big decisions you can make as you're thinking about private chef stuff or, little tactical like this is how i write my emails kind of kind of, or how i how i set up my tools bag uh for to be in someone's home kind of kind of advice for for people who are wanting to get more private chef work or they've just started private chef work and they're feeling a little bit like out of their element yeah you know for me and it's it's still something i struggle with is i would say like knowing what you're good at knowing what you can execute and knowing when to say when, like I have a customer this weekend and maybe it's because I'm, I'm cooking an Airbnb I've been at before, but like I proposed a menu. She's like, well, we'd really like to have like, say a risotto and scallops. I know I can't execute that. It's a, a four burner stove. I know this house. Uh, but even if I didn't, for me, if I go in as one person, knowing that like it's 13 people, like doing risotto for 13 people by myself on a home stove. And then you want to scallop on top of that where I have to like pan sear them all individually. And by the way, three minutes later, you want your entree and two sides. Like, and I think a lot of people bite off more than they can chew. And I think knowing how to have that conversation say like, the reality is like, I'm there cooking by myself. It's a home four burner stove. I know you go to restaurants and you have risotto and scallops, but like you have to realize it's not really something that's executable in like a home kitchen environment. Uh, you know, I've had customers say like, oh, we would love oysters. And knowing that like, I'm not an oyster guy. I don't like to eat them. I am really terrible at shucking them. Like I can muddle my way through for like a two to four top. But if I have 10 people, like just saying like, that's not something I'm comfortable doing. And I think a lot of us as personal chefs, you know, th we want to say we can do everything. And knowing that like you can't be a master of all cuisines and techniques and everything, and it doesn't do you or your customer any good to bullshit them and say like, sure, I'll come and do like an oyster bar for a dozen people. And yeah, like let's do scallops and risotto right before you have your, you know, next two courses and just being comfortable with like explaining to your customer. And I think they'll respect you for that and understand that. Huge pro tip that you started that story with. Airbnbs as venues is dopeness. I don't know if that's you... my money maker. That's nice. my money maker. Like so I tell it... all the people, like that's that's what has kept me in business. And so you do you do that seeking out and you send them a link of like here here's the Airbnb, it's available, here's the price, you guys need to book it kind of no, thing. So so what happened is it really started with uh me putting it together when customers started finding me. So customers would just book an Airbnb. And then they would do the work of like searching for a chef. And I would go out to this place. I'm like, oh, you don't live here. It's an Airbnb. You know, can I get the info? Uh, so, you know, I'm there and I'm taking tons of photos. So making sure that like then I'm posting photos of the dinner on Instagram and tagging the Airbnb and then following up with a DM or an email and saying like, 
I don't know if you know anything about me or that I was at your house, but I, you know, I was there this weekend. I cooked for this party. I'm sure you could follow up with them and they would say I was great, but like, I would love to be a referral. And, you know, when someone books your house, can you, you know, say, if you need a chef, contact Chris. Um, and then, so like to take that one step further, like, could you put my information on your website? Because, you know, a lot of times in an Airbnb owner will say, well, send me some cards. I'll put them in the house. Well, you know, like that doesn't work. Like when people get into the house, like they're not going to book me. They need that ahead of time. And I try and go at it from the extent of saying like, I think this is a value add that would help sell your place because me, like my wife and I are foodies. And if we're looking to get away for the weekend and we look at your house, but you're in the middle of nowhere, I'm going to say to my wife, like, where are we going to be eating? Like, I would love to come to their website and see like, oh, they also have a chef like who they would recommend and here's his website. So really being proactive in that um, that approach and just kind of reaching out to them and kind of doing like cold calling. Again, something not comfortable with, just sending a random DM or email and saying like, I know you don't know anything about me, but here's kind of my resume. Look at my you know reviews. And I would love if when people you know booked your place, you sent them my info. And that has just been... It keeps the money coming in. All these people just say, you know, yeah, I'm staying at Mortgage Hall in Middleburg. And they said, you know, call Chris. And the benefit of having the Chefs Without Restaurants network is that it's also a gig sharing platform. So even though I am not going to do the wedding for 100 people, if you're staying at that venue, I can connect you with someone who can. So I really wanted to be the guy who could find a chef for whatever size event you're having in the DMV area. And, you know, is there a way... Is there a way to scale that and take that nationally? You know, if I'm not in Seattle, could I still somehow partner with Airbnbs in Seattle and connect them with you or something, you know, and that's something I'm looking at. That's the type of use of the word hustle that I actually really kind of like, that's, that's dope, you know? And I think that it's kind of gotten bastardized to this. You need to work 90 hours a week and just grind yourself in the ground and, and, and whatever, but like you pursuing opportunities like that so there's another um there's a venue here in seattle where i did the same thing uh, similar not the same thing it was i wanted to host a pop-up uh it was on a night when the restaurants that i had normally been working with were they had service like it was a friday or saturday night and i really wanted to do one on a friday or saturday night to test if this pop-up concept that i was doing would have legs on a, on a friday night and so Went on Airbnb, found this Airbnb in this neighborhood that's like, it's like a semi-residential neighborhood here in Seattle. And I go talk to the guy. I tell him, hey, I, and, and I was transparent on this. Like, people have advice that go either way. Like, don't tell them you're hosting a party. Because I think that what Airbnb hosts are really trying to avoid is like the the, the 150-person one that's going to show up on the news kind of party, right? Like, if you have a small dinner party, it, it is what it is. But I, I, I reached out to this guy and I said, hey... I noticed that you talked about renting this out for, for private events. He said something on the, the page. Gave me a tour of the space. He had an entire downstairs basement tiki bar set up that could have easily held like 40 to 50 people and was like fully built out and ready. And, you know, had the pop-up series kept going, I would have worked with that venue tons and tons more. But he's like, hey, listen, when you do this again, just like call me directly don't book on Airbnb. I'll give you a better price because I don't have to pay Airbnb's fees. And we can just kind of like, but that, that element of like, nobody gave me that connection. 
You know, like I had to find that. I had to hustle for that. Like that's the use of that word that I actually enjoy. It's like seek out these opportunities, like know when to like semi break the rules or ask for what you want. Uh, that that's what I hope that people are kind of kind of taking away from this. I have one more point, but I'd be curious to hear if you have anything to well, share there. Well, this is a, a kind of it adds on to that, but it's a little different slant. So my Department of Health around here hates that, and they would say that that is running an illegal underground restaurant. Sure, because sure. that is what I did one time. I have an Airbnb who I am very good friends with. And we hosted a dinner there and we invited some influencers who didn't pay. And there was some media there and some people paid. And she actually was at the dinner. She gave a tour of the Airbnb. We thought it was a great partnership. She didn't charge me. The people who were there wrote some amazing pieces. And then the Department of Health came at me because, you know, it was the cover story in Frederick Magazine and in the Frederick News Post. And it looked like I was running an underground restaurant out of an Airbnb. And while they couldn't come after me, this woman who has an Airbnb also has uh, other businesses that she runs on her property. And then that next week, I'm not saying this happened, <laughs> but a government agent came on her property because allegedly someone placed a phone call saying that someone was illegally living on her property, which wasn't true. But when they were there, they found other things there. Nothing, you know nothing illegal, but just like things that weren't up to code. And I just felt like it was this like shakedown, like basically the Department of Health was coming after me, but they couldn't come after me. So they were kind of like going up the chain to come after her to kind of set the signal that like anyone who kind of helps Chris facilitate this illegal restaurant is going to come under scrutiny. And I don't like that kind of business. Emulsion podcast disclaimer, do your research, everybody. Like, make sure that you know. It like, varies from state to state. Correct. Like, like Seattle. County to county. One of yeah. my old soup mm -hmm. chefs is actually a Department of Health inspector in another county in Maryland, about 20 minutes from here. And I called him and asked him about this. And he ran it up the flagpole to his boss. And his boss said, if you are doing it in a private residence or an Airbnb, that is not our business, not our concern. We have bigger fish to fry. We don't care. If you want to rent a Airbnb in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and do this, it's fine. But if I do this in Frederick, they are coming after me. That's that's us here, too, at least in the time when I was doing those events, was if someone can walk off the street into that Airbnb and sit down in a seat and pay, uh, that's not okay. If I sell tickets in advance and it's understood what the guest list is, they, know, they completely know what they're signing up for, that's considered a private ticketed event totally kosher see we can't do the private ticketed events mm. if you publish online they say it's not private if you go on instagram and say dm me for tickets if you make an event bright if you do any of that they consider that a public event because then literally anyone in the public can do it and if it's a public event then it is open to inspection by the department of health fascinating things i've learned yeah fascinating everybody do which their makes research. me which makes me not want to do that it makes me just want to do private dinners yeah it just it kills yeah it kills certain types of business models and structures and you know but it goes back to again what is a restaurant and the mm -hmm. evolving model mm -hmm. and i think you know we have inspectors who are of a certain generation and a certain mindset of things and they're you know they don't like pop-ups and takeovers because i've looked at you know this restaurant they're closed on a monday night can i go in and do a dinner there they don't like that they don't want me doing a pop-up in a brewery you know like it's a very old school mindset because they're used to a very traditional model and they're not staying with the times in my opinion the silly place where my, my mind goes. And this is like very much so a symptom of, um, when I was at per se, 
they launched the uh, like sous vide program in New York, and the Department of Health there used them and their whole program as an example for what the HACCP plan should look like for all other restaurants that were wanting to do sous vide. And so, like my hustle brain, right? My, my that that brain goes towards if you're in a county that's like that, how could you approach that person and say like if I keep temperature records on everything that I'm working with, is that something that you guys are, you know, like how can you start that conversation to kind of like uh, tell them that you're willing to be more, because, because it's a liability, it's a liability thing for them, right? At the end of the day, like they don't, they don't want the citizens going up in some sort of uproar that people are getting sick at this poke pop-up because everybody like this company is serving spoiled fish uh, to, to the citizens. And all of a sudden, like they're, they're having to spend county resources to clean up your mess, right? Like that's what they're trying to avoid. And so but how, how can is it you... different if I come in your house and do that? Sure. Though? Like if sure. they're the same Great people, question. right? Like it's, it's just yep. semantics of it. Like if I come to Justin's house and he and his wife are having a party for 10 people and they all get sick, like that's okay. And why is it different that you hired me privately versus me soliciting for customers? It's Fascinating. just, it's just very, there's so many nuances to all of it. And I just mm-hmm. like, I don't have the patience for it because so much of it is like BS. And I mean, totally. I, I get it. I'm someone who's had been ServeSafe certified since like 1994. Like I understand there's a lot of people, the pandemic for sure. I mean, there's a lot of people like, you know, selling tacos out of their garage at their home because they're trying to make ends meet. Like I, I know there's a lot of things you need to police. I just am at the point in my career where I don't have the time or patience for that. I'm just kind of exhausted with it all. A point I want to bring back to before we jump into rapid fire stuff is is this idea of when you say when you when you lead with private chef custom menus, experience in a bunch of in a, in a myriad of myriad of different um, cuisines or techniques or arenas. It's common, I think, to think that you have to lead with that, and I think that part of your you know what you mentioned of that frustration of presenting. Uh, or, or, or feeling like you're on the back foot when clients ask for things that you're either not comfortable preparing yourself, uh, you know they aren't going to be represented well by you, by you and the way that you cook, or listen, so-and-so, the venue, the venue doesn't allow for this. I think that there's advice that I can give, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, is like know what your go-to menu offerings are, and if that client wants something in addition to that, they're going to ask you for it, Versus this idea of giving the client a blank canvas and saying, please paint on this, you know, and then, and then I will replicate whatever it is that you do, like have the confidence to lead with what you do, you know, you do best and you know, is going to work because if they have those questions or there's those specific, um, things that they want, they will come to you with those after the fact, but you should lead and take that proactive. That's, that's my advice. I'd be curious to hear. So I do a questionnaire and I'll go through it like beside the nuts and bolts of who you are and when you want this. It's scale of one to 10, how adventurous are you? One to 10, how much spice do you like? Foods and cuisines you love, foods and cuisines you hate, uh, is any dietary restrictions, allergies, et cetera, are you okay with the use of alcohol in your dinner? And then they fill that out. And you know, I'm a eight for adventurous, a four for spice. I love Mexican and Thai. I hate Middle Eastern, Italian, uh, no allergies, alcohol is okay. And then I go from there. And then I have a go-to menu for all four seasons. And then I just start eliminating based on, okay, they don't like these cuisines and I take those off. Then I look at things like, what do I not want to make and take those things off? Um, and just kind of tailor it down to like a two-page menu of apps, soups, salads, entrees, desserts, and send it to them. But then they still might come back and say, mm. like this last party, like, well, we said we liked Italian. I noticed you didn't put risotto on there. The birthday girl really uh-huh. loves risotto. Can you do it? 
And that's where I have to come back and say like, the venue does not, like it's just not conducive to doing this there. Um, I could probably do a pasta, you know, like a pasta is easier. You put pasta and water and it's done. It's not like a risotto you have to stir. And just, can you find some middle ground? You know, I'm never trying to shove anything down their throat. I really want to build a menu. It's not 100% customized. Like I have a list of, it might be 400 things that I'm pulling from that I whittle down to them. I'm not sitting there scratching my head saying like, Oh, what am I going to do? Like, I have a pretty good idea of what I'm going to be sending out to my customers per season. And then um, some of it, I allow myself for chef's courses. So I used to let them pick all the courses. Now I've taken one to two courses out. And then I bring like chef's surprise course based on how adventurous they say they are. Right. Uh, and go from there. But yeah, I mean, just again, knowing that I can't do everything. And this this is a much bigger conversation, but talking about like cultural appropriation and what you're comfortable with doing, because I think people think because you're a personal chef and it's customized, you can and will do everything, right? Like if you want Italian food, you would go to an Italian restaurant. You would never go to a Mexican restaurant and get upset that you couldn't get a lasagna. But I think people hear that you're a personal chef and it's personalized and customized. They say, we want lasagna. Why aren't you going to make me a lasagna? And like, maybe I've never made a lasagna. Maybe I don't feel like that's a cuisine that I should be, you know, people will come and want like Indian food. Like I can make some things Indian-ish, but I didn't grow up eating Indian food, really. I didn't grow up cooking Indian food. Like, why do you want me making Indian food? Like, you should probably just go to an Indian restaurant. And if you want me, like, why don't you order the things that I'm really good at and some of my specialties? Interesting. Yeah, that could that could be. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a pin in that for our next conversation. <laughs> I, I yeah, because that's, because that's I do have line. thoughts to share. Yeah, and and you know, um, I'm I'm someone who, uh, my dad who is Indian didn't really cook that much Indian food, and so you know the semi connection I had with Indian food was through my grandmother, and she passed away when I was 11, and so it's like I have memories of her food, but I don't really I never cooked with her. And then there's this funny dynamic when I go to India, it's like none of, none of my aunties want me to be in the kitchen because it's a, it's very much so a, a household where the, the woman of the house is the, is the one that cooks. And so it's a very strange like dynamic when I want to be in the kitchen with any of my, my, you know, the, the people in my family who do the cooking, who have the knowledge to share with me. Um, so it's, it's, I, I'm going to put a pin in that cause I, I know this isn't going to be our last conversation and I'd be curious to pick that up on our, on our next one. Um, Let's go into rapid fire stuff. And the, and, the, and the first one I have, you can choose the time frame. What is one thing that you've changed your mind on, either in recent memory or since our last conversation? That's a tough one. Um, I don't know. I just think, I think the, the more I go on, the less that I want to be cooking. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I just mm -hmm. think that's. I just think that's really hard. Like, you know, I left my job so that I could cook on my terms every day. Like I'm almost upset when I have a gig that requires me to cook. And I hate to say that, like, I love cooking. Like it's what I've always done. But I think as you know, I don't remember when I talked to you, but like the, the way the podcast has gone and building the community, you know, it's like this Saturday I have to cook. And that means like three days this week are taken up with having to, shop and prep and menu plan it's taking away from like oh i've got to release a podcast you know on tuesday and like this weekend now i have to work and i'm not gonna have time to do that and it should be the other way around you know so that i guess yeah i don't think you're the only person who 
is either feeling that by nature of like your restaurant that you used to work at closed down or uh, culinary school was canceled and you can't go to classes during during pandemic times. I think or, once you get out of a routine too, like I'm cooking correct. less because of the pandemic. I think mm-hmm. like, not that my skills have gone, but I think once you're in the mode of like, you're cooking all the time, you're cooking. And that's what I was doing to make money. And then being unemployed from that for so long. And then jobs being so sporadic, like January, February and beginning of March has sucked for the personal chef business. So I've just had to go deep into this other thing. Like I felt like I have to be doing something and that's become the podcast. So now even as the personal chef business is picking it back up, I I almost feel like that ship has sailed. Like I'm just not interested in it. Even though I know that's not true. I love cooking and creating, but like now figuring out where the balance is going to be. Like if the business comes back and there's the interest in people hiring me to be a personal chef, like where, how I'm going to split that time. I think there's also this sense and I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be careful of how I word this. There is a point that I ran into in the start of 2020 when I really dug my heels in and I was like, I want to cook at all of our events. Like, I want to be the one that cooks at all of our, um, that that has my hands on the food. I want to be able to, of course, hire other chefs to work with me when it's, when it's needed, like when the capacity is needed or, you know, but I would, I would literally get, it came in two, two ways direct conversations like direct feedback and funny looks in meetings of you shouldn't be doing the cooking like it's literally at cost to the company like you you are you are sacrificing resources of ours by you being the one that's cooking because you should be going to look at this new office for us in Seattle that we're going to move to and it's going to save us $2000 a month like and I, me saying that, no, I want to cook at this happy hour, like, that's bad. Like, that's that's irresponsible. And so it's, like, very interesting. And, and I'm sure that people who, you know, go from uh, being an executive chef to doing their own restaurant and you have those conversations where you get told, no, you shouldn't be the one cooking it. Like, they go through that same saga, right, of this, like, it's this thing oh, yeah, that I, I love. I've had chefs say, like, you have to have yeah. your head out of the pot. Like, you can't be the executive chef and be cooking all the time. Like. Yep. The chef's job is not to be making the soup for tonight. Like you have people to do that. Like you need to be working on food cost and menus. That's such a yeah, such a double edged thing. What what is a book that's been particularly impactful in your career? And you can talk cooking, you can talk business, you can talk media production. Yeah, I was just uh, talking to someone about this the other day. I love the book Becoming a Chef because it was like the first time I kind of really heard some of these things about like how you become a chef, right? Like um, they've, they've written some amazing books. And I think, you know, the flavor Bible is one that people always go to, but at a time when there weren't a lot of books about how you actually became a chef, I think you like hearing the stories of these well-known chefs and, you know, whether you do culinary school or not, or like, you know, what's the process. Um, and that was a book that I've always loved. It's also a book that I've had signed by 128 chefs because I counted last week um, and had a discussion with the author. So it's also the most prized possession in my house if my house was on fire. I mean, everyone from Rene Redzepi to Massimo Batura to Ferran Adria have like signed this book and it, um, you know, I love it. Insane. And but that but you know the the uh, that's an interesting thing because I was thinking about this today. Like from a technical standpoint, I would say right now, like the fla- uh, not the flavor bible, the food labs book, right, yep. is a great yep. book. And I don't understand people kind of resting on this like 
old school mentality because I was in a Facebook group today where someone said like, what's the best book you would recommend to someone to be a cook? And, and people were saying like La Russe Gastronomique. And, and, and it's like, who is like still reading that in 2021? Like, I get it that it's like a classic, um, but like, really, is that the best? Like if you gave someone one book to read, I feel like that's such like an old school mentality of like, here are these very classic stodgy, like, uh, French technique books. Like I understand their place and hold them in a, a revered spot. But like, if I was going to give someone one book about, um, how to cook, I would say like the food lab is a great book from like technical standpoint of how to make like literally hundreds of things and the whys. And I don't understand these people who keep recommending someone's like, you know, the joy of cooking. It's like, like, I don't know. Like, why are we still having this discussion? I didn't want to get in this debate with strangers on the internet, but I did say to some of them, do you really still think that that's like, uh, uh, like in this current day, like the best book that you would recommend to people? Like, have you not been in the cooking section of a bookstore in 20 years? It's the, and it's funny that it's his least selling book, but it's the first recipe in Tim Ferriss's four hour chef specifically is not stock. It's something like a uh, seared scallops with like a mango, red onion, cilantro kind of like salsa thing on it. And I think, I think there's a vinaigrette with it as well. And so he's like, the fr- buy, and it, this is very much so how he thinks about, the whole book is about learning. And he talks about like languages and you should be able to like get to a point where you can have phrases, like order things at a restaurant kind of, kind of thing. And it's like, you could get a week into any of these books that we've talked about and know how to make stock and maybe an emulsion or at the end of four hours, like at the start of four hour chef after week one, you have a dish you can serve to your date, you know, like very different way of looking at, um, approaching new domains. It's just very interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm noticing your shirt and maybe that's part of this. What is, what is something that doesn't end up on your Instagram or on your podcast, as in you don't share it very widely, but you get really excited about it or you love it. Um, yeah, I got my Star Wars shirt on. Yeah. I do love my Star Wars. <laughs> you know, like um, I would say, I mean, I'm a huge music and concert fan. And there's some of that. If you even go through Perfect Little Bites, and I do worry that like occasionally, you know, all the people in social media experts will say like, you know, don't put any of that stuff out there. But like, I don't know, it's just stuff I like. I love photography. Um, I did this past year start a new Instagram just for myself, just for like my photography, because I did feel like I didn't, I haven't done any of it with Chefs Without Restaurants. But with Perfect Little Bites, I wanted that to be more of me and started putting some of that stuff. And I was like, nah, I really like concerts is enough, but I need a place for photography, but just like really having an appreciation for photography it's something i really love but concerts like i would love to be like a concert photographer i love music i think i'm missing live music even more so than going to restaurants right now i just posted yesterday on twitter i went to see wire which is like a punk post-punk band from the 70s 80s Uh, i saw them a year ago yesterday it was on the march 9th and um you know i took some great photos i was like right there in the front row and one of my favorite things is just to go see live bands. So That's... I try not to put too many of those photos, but you'll occasionally see like a thread of like, you know, I went to Nine Inch Nails and there's like three <laughs> photos taking up the block in a row because I thought they were great photos. And like, 
I don't care if you unfollow me for that. That's something no, that's, I'm really into. That's awesome. I mean, but part it's of also like... inspired by that too. Like music for me, like I always have music on in the kitchen. I've talked a lot about how music makes you feel. I love the idea of like, you know, Ken, Ken having certain tempo music, like how are you cooking when you're listening to Nine Inch Nails versus when you're listening to, you know, Ben Folds, you know, like does that impact you in any way? And I really think that's interesting. And I, I do think they're connected. It's like I, I talk about, on my solo podcast episodes, I used to do like the non-industry story as a way to, you know, talk about things that interest me, but also like uh, make it a more regular part of the conversation of being engaged on things that are outside of the industry. So I would call it the non-industry story. But I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, as I ask guests these this question, I'm trying to almost like subliminally make people used to this idea of like, oh man, if Justin would ask me that question, I don't have anything that's outside of like food or restaurants or whatever. And so it's like, like, am I, and it's not to say that I don't think that people should be dedicated to their, their work or whatever, but it's like making it okay that you could, you have things that you're interested in outside of, outside of, you know, what, what we associate with our identity, which is being a chef, you know? Well, that goes back to me making the comment about being so sad about these people who don't have anything going on on a Friday night. It's the same people who say like, I don't know what I'd do if I retired. I was like, I do. Like, I could retire tomorrow. Like, I would be, you know, I would go to shows all the time and I would take up photography and I would like work in my garden and I would read like every book I've wanted to read. Like, I have so many things. Like, I used to live in Seattle. I loved going to bookstores and author site, like going to Elliott Bay Books and totally. hanging out down there. I'm a big Chuck Polinick fan. I've met him like eight times. I used to follow him on book tours and get photos with him. He and I have hung out a couple times in Seattle, you know, um, things like that. I love anything in the arts world, whether it be books, photography. I love going to museums and paintings and music and all that stuff. And I'm just passionate about every bit of it. And if I wasn't cooking, I could retire tomorrow and find things to fill my days. Like all these people talk about being bored during COVID and I get it. And I'm not like saying people haven't had it tough, but like, there's been so many things like, We've slowed down. I'm at home. I'm not bored. I'm not sitting at home bored out of my mind. Like there is enough to fill my day within the walls of my home every single day if I wasn't able to leave. Ryan Holiday talks about the hobbies that actually make you better at the thing, you know, because it's like you you achieve what he calls stillness, but it's this idea of like giving your mind a break and allowing yourself to whether it's be bored or enter a state of flow in a different domain that actually allows you to be able to be a better writer or podcast host or write a better menu because it's like, those are the shower thoughts moments, right? Which is so, so interesting. Yeah. But it's like an echo chamber. Cause you and I love the same guy. Like I'm big Ryan Holiday yeah, fan, big yeah. Tim Ferriss fan, like all totally. those people. And I hope so many more people like pick up on them and, and what they're doing. Like, as busy as I am every day, like finding my time to read my daily stoic email, like it's only going to take me five minutes and making sure I prioritize it on all the crap that's on my inbox. How do you make your eggs in the morning? And this can be maybe like a question of, uh, it's your, it's your, the, the way I frame it is like on your day off, you just had a really hard, maybe like two, two or three events in a row and you're making eggs for yourself in the morning. How does that yeah. go? I like my eggs uh, over easy, but fried hard on the outside. So like I'm a big egg sandwich guy. Nice. So perfect world would be like an everything bagel toasted. I don't care if it was fresh. I still believe in toasting your bagel. Uh, flip it over. I want it like kind of crispy around the edges. I don't want it to run all over the place and make a hot mess, but still be a little soft and give me some like extra sharp cheddar cheese on there. And we're good. Little hot sauce. That's nice. a good breakfast. Nice, nice, nice. 
my my quintessential question. I don't think you've answered this yet. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won an all-expenses-paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk to, waiting to have dinner with you. What is that restaurant, and who is that person? That's not a fair question. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I I would want to eat with Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails because they're probably my favorite band. And I, I think he's an interesting person because if you look at evolution, I mean, the guy just won a Golden Globe last week. I mean, for scoring a Disney movie, right? Nuts. And I think I think that does kind of represent, like you look at someone like that who didn't put himself in a box and he has kind of evolved over the years. So um, just a huge fan of his music. And I love Mexican food. So I think, you know, as much as I love Cosme in New York, I'd want to go to like Mexico and eat at one of Enrique's Pujol down there, I think would probably be. So like if I could hang out with Trent Reznor at Pujol, I think that would be a really good time. Nuts. Yeah. Good choices. Good choices. Last question for you, Chris. What do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation? I think being encouraging to them and staying with the times and realizing that like evolution is a thing and real, right? Like just because how we were taught to be a chef isn't necessarily the way that the next generation needs to be taught. What we learned were restaurants. Like, can we rethink what a restaurant is? Can we rethink what a sustainable career in food and beverage is and not be those people? Like I said, like, not just kind of saying, because I did it this way, you should have to, too. The the idea of paying your dues. And I think, and whether that be a book like La Rue's Gastronomique, I mean, you just these people are in this mindset of like, I went to culinary school for four years. I had to pay my dues. I had to come up through the ranks of a restaurant. I had to read these books. Like, it's a very different world. And like realizing that and being encouraging. And, you know, maybe it's because I have kids. Like, I... I want to, you know, if my, my kids talk about wanting to be YouTubers, it's like, I know some parents think that that's the worst thing, but like, if my kids could make a hundred grand a year reviewing video games, like, I don't think that's the worst thing. I know a lot of parents would disagree with me, but you know, like they, they think it's so cool that like, I'm doing this thing. Like I came up uh, to, to have a quick dinner between my clubhouse thing and this. And they're like, are you famous? I'm like, well, no. And they're like, well, who are you talking to? I was like, well, I was on a panel with some people who are on top chef and I'm, you know, talking to this guy. And to them, that's like cool and being famous because that's the world they're living in. And again, that's a Gary V thing, right. A about like not being stuck in that kind of mindset. Like the world is changing and, and I think I'm young at heart, even though, you know, I'm in my forties. I some I still act like a 20 something. Um, but I think there's a lot of evolution coming. I think it's going to get only faster with AI and VR and all this stuff. And, and the food world is also going to be changing with that and not being the, the grumpy old man on the porch, uh, and, and realizing that there's different ways to do things. Where do you want people to go? where specific, even, even individual specific things. Cause I, I certainly get intimidated by this of like, uh, people ask where to find me and I can give you one of six links. But if you have a specific one that you're like, I really want people to go here right now. Um, and then me, I'll, I'll include a secondary one of like maybe your main stuff. Um, where, 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 where can people go? And then I have one last question for you. Yeah. 
if you go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org, that's great because I have it set up with like four links of things I want people to go to, one of which being the podcast. Uh, and then, you know, one of them is going to be the Facebook uh, private group that I have for people uh, to do that. And then, you know, I'm Perfect Little Bites and Chefs Without Restaurants on all social media platforms. Do you want to leave anybody with anything? Any parting thoughts or things? Again, I know I know you and I are in particular are going to have more conversations to come as we're playing podcast tag, but any, anything you want to leave people with? I don't know. I just, I love this industry and I love people who are in this industry and I want to build, like I said, I'm trying to build the community that I've always wanted to see. I want people to be a part of that. So anyone who wants to connect with me, like I am an open book, like my phone number is on the internet. <laughs> my email address is out there. Like I have people like randomly texting me saying things like, I got let go from my job. How do I become a personal chef? Like, and I'll take the time as I can. So, um, yeah, reach out to me on social media. I, I want to build the largest network of like people in the food industry. And I don't discriminate if you work in a restaurant, I get it. You know, I, I love, I love y'all, but I've specifically been working on building a network of people working outside of a traditional restaurant setting. So yeah, find me and come connect. Cause you're famous. You're famous to us. Um, you know, everyone's, everyone's famous for 15 minutes or 1500 fall. Everyone has 1500 followers, don't they? I mean, I'm sorry for anyone out there who doesn't have 1500 followers, but uh, you know, yeah. thanks for coming on the show. Man. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. What's up? Justin here again, because I mean, if you're still listening, you didn't not like this episode, right? And if that's the case, I'd like to think that you'd get value from the other work that I share here online all focused on helping chefs and hospitality professionals perform better. If you don't have a lot of time, the best place to start is with the email newsletter that I write every single week called the 80-20 Edge. That's where I share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. And I say it saves time because I include all of the content that I published that week all in one place as kind of a weekly digest of sorts. Next up, you should check out my YouTube channel for gear reviews, clips from podcasts just like this one, and documented experiences from some of the best restaurants in the world. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about my intense cohort-based professional development focused course, get coaching from me to help you make your next move, or just support the show, you can check out justinconnacom support. And if you do support this show already, that's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Finally, it really does help to share a review of this show on Apple Podcasts to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. And until the next episode, my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.